they said, you know, I don't think this is anything. I think it probably is something like a migraine, but given the symptoms, I just want to have you checked out. So he organized for her to have uh, a scan. On the way home from the scan, her GP had called her saying she had to come in straight away to the GP surgery and bring someone that she loved. And as soon as that kind of thing happens, you know it's bad news. Uh, They said they found something on the scan in your brain, large tumor on your right frontal lobe, so the front of your brain. Uh, The reason you've been getting headaches is that there's obviously pressure now uh, inside the skull and this is an emergency situation so you're scheduled in for brain surgery tomorrow morning and you need to sleep tonight. So this is obviously from a relatively normal life to you're going to have a large part of your frontal lobe. Basically we're going to remove your right frontal lobe tomorrow morning. Um, So that that was basically our entry into cancer. Welcome back to What Does Good Look Like, the podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna, and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. February 4th is World Cancer Day, and the purpose of this day is to raise awareness and education about cancer. The 2019 to 2021 campaign theme is I am and I will, to counter the belief that nothing can be done about cancer. Instead, this campaign promotes how our personal actions can be powerful and impactful. This is, of course, not to say that all cancers are preventable, but the global burden of cancer can be reduced. And at an individual level, there may be things that you can do, not only in terms of risk reduction, but also after being diagnosed. So in this episode, we will cover the cancer research, but but Anna also asked if I could share my story uh, around my experience of having a partner who actually died of cancer and the experience from diagnosis through to actual death. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the very personal story for, for Isabel, my daughter, and how, how she dealt with that period too. So uh, it's not something that I've commonly talked about, not because I'm not open to it, but just it's not typically something that you bring up in, in everyday conversation. So, uh, so I, th- I hope this is interesting and I hope it helps someone if they need help and I'm happy to be as honest and open about it as I can be. So well maybe we should should start from the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about how it all started? Yeah so this story is about my late wife Lena and the story begins in January 2007 where we'd left um, our home in Stockholm to go and visit and stay with some friends in London and every morning of that trip, Lena would wake up with a really bad headache and not be able to to join us. So basically I'd take Isabel, who was one and a half at the time, and we'd go out with friends. And I remember at the time, kind of selfishly looking back, obviously, feeling really frustrated with Lena because we'd gone, we've gone to visit these friends, you know, they were looking forward to us visiting and she was in bed basically until one o'clock in the afternoon and then the headache would start to subside and then she'd be fine by the evening. And this happened every day. So uh, we we thought something may happen. We thought it could be a cold. Um, we didn't know. We just thought, assumed it would pass. And we came back to Stockholm in the beginning of January. So this was just after New Year. And the headaches got worse. And then we had some friends visiting in January, middle of January. And 
the same thing has happened in London happened again where Lena couldn't join us. And in fact, the headaches became so bad, she went to the emergency room at the local hospital. Um, after about four hours of, in the waiting room, they said that she had a migraine and they put her in uh, a dark room. And so she stayed there for about seven or eight hours until the afternoon where again, the, the headache subsided. And I guess there was a kind of element of serendipity at what happened next. Uh, she'd booked an appointment with the local GP and on the Wednesday, she went to this appointment. She'd actually been okay on the Monday, Tuesday. And on the Wednesday, she went to an appointment. The doctor there was a locum doctor, so it was not a normal GP. There was someone who was just helping out. And they, good on them, they said, you know, I don't think this is anything. I think it probably is something like a migraine. But given the symptoms, I just want to have you checked out. So he organized for her to have uh, a scan. Uh, and they booked it pretty quickly, actually. So she had it f the following week. She went in for a scan. I was at work. She called me to say that on the way home from the scan, her GP had called her saying she had to come in straight away to the GP surgery and bring someone that she loved, which is a pretty, you know, she called me to tell me that obviously straight away so I could join her. And as soon as that kind of thing happens, you know it's bad news. But obviously, no one's telling you anything. So you turn up at the GP. Uh, they said they found something on the scan in your brain. Uh, it looks like there's a mass. You need to go to hospital now. So you had to follow process, which was to go to your GP, to then go to hospital. Uh, you turn up at the emergency ward, who then give you the referral to the, uh, the neurology department to then be told, okay, we found this large tumor on your right frontal lobe, so the front of your brain. Uh, the reason you've been getting headaches is that there's obviously pressure now uh, inside the skull, and this is an emergency situation, so you're scheduled in for brain surgery tomorrow morning, and you need to sleep tonight. So this is obviously from a relatively normal life to you're going to have a large part of your frontal lobe. Basically, we're going to remove your right frontal lobe tomorrow morning, um so that was that was basically our entry into cancer it was obviously a big shock for you guys uh with the diagnosis and everything happening so quickly but how did you feel the interaction was with the doctors did you get the any answers as to what was going to happen were there lots of questions so we sat down with the lead surgeon that the wednesday night so she'd had this the scan that wednesday morning wednesday night they said okay, we're going to operate tomorrow morning. Uh, we got a really competent surgeon. He explained what was going to happen. He explained why they were doing it. He explained, he obviously couldn't give a diagnosis because you need to send a portion of the tissue once it's removed from surgery uh, to a pathologist who will then tell you what type of cancer it is. But he was quite honest that his view was because of the size of the tumour and the fact that she had only recently become symptomatic, it was most likely something that had taken a long time to grow, potentially years to grow. Uh, obviously, this was not. Uh, this was still even more shocking for uh, for her and for for her mother because they'd lost their father uh, for uh, the most aggressive through the most aggressive form of brain tumor about two and a half years earlier. And although there's no supposed genetic link, you know, you know what happened there. You have a lot of thoughts. Uh, about what the future may hold uh, and I'm pretty sure that was I I stayed with her that night at the hospital and uh, and I can recall that she didn't really sleep that night obviously yeah no I can imagine that uh, and then she had the surgery 
Um, and then did you have some radiation as well or? I mean, so this is just so everyone knows how this plays out. It was a, it was, the whole thing was a long process. So she had the surgery. Uh, there was a period of re- rehabilitation. She was on chemotherapy soon after the surgery. So what they do is they removed the portion of the brain that, that was affected and a little bit uh, around where they think the ends of the tumor are um, so that they have some, some bandwidth hoping it won't grow back. Uh, they then uh, did an analysis on what type of tumor it was. It was quite a rare one at that time. It was what they refer to as a grade three. So you have uh, a grade two tumor, sorry. So you have grades one to four for brain tumors. Four is the most aggressive and sadly the most common, which is the glioblastoma. Uh, grade one can be very slow growing. You would normally survive it depending upon where it is. Uh, they may not even operate on it for, for years at a time. So hers was two going to a grade three. It was called a gemistocytic astrocytoma, which was quite a, a rare one. But unfortunately, one with probably not a great long-term prognosis. So that's what that's what happened. She went on to chemotherapy. She responded well. Uh, and from about after recovery from about summer 2007, she was on pretty good form. I went to work in Singapore. She brought our daughter and joined me uh, there as well for, for some time. Yeah, so then uh, she obviously had regular checkups after that, but you had a period uh, where life reverted back to some form of normal family life, I guess. So so I think we have to be quite careful at this point because there's obviously my point of view and also what she was thinking. And and I think that the, the patient themselves, so someone in her position, uh, different people will react in different ways. So from her point of view, she didn't want to think about the negative possibilities of the future. She wanted to live her life assuming that this period was over. So by about 2008, uh, 2009, we decided you know, we wanted to have more children. We had one, one, one child at that time. You know, life becomes much more valuable to you and you know, having a family becomes really important. So the chemotherapy had potentially damaged her prospects of having another child. So we actually went through some some fertility treatment, which in the end we didn't need because at the first session we found out she was pregnant. But uh, but yes, yeah, so she, she very much didn't want to think about it or even talk about it. Yeah, so she, she stayed in remission for a while, but then unfortunately things, things got worse again. Yeah, so um, we actually took some guidance from... from the medical community around whether or not we should have more children because there's a possibility with some tumors that during pregnancy because of hormonal changes uh, some cancers can come back more aggressively and I think that the summary of the evidence is no one knows and we had some doctors saying I wouldn't do it another doctor saying you know if you want to have children I think you should you should go for it so our son Vigo was born in 2009 and she was in a great place at the beginning of the pregnancy and then things changed during the pregnancy. And to be honest, um, so she'd had a, a scan, I think in February of 2009 and it looked fine because you go through this whole, every six months you're having a scan and you have a slight worry and then everything's fine and you can live your normal life. That's whatever type of cancer that that's often the way. Uh, but I could tell about a month and a half before she um before she gave birth there was a big change in her personality um i don't think many other people noticed it um but i was getting really worried and then on the day 
I mean, this is crazy, but the, on the day that she um, started having contractions and our son was going to be born, uh, we were at the house and we were going into the hospital. She was having quite painful contractions. And I said, okay, we need to really go now. She's like, yeah, we have to go. We have to go. We have to go. I'm just going to go and make some toast, you know, which was just at the time it was batshit crazy. And I just, I knew I was at that stage. I thought something is seriously wrong. Uh, and there have been other things, obviously, leading up to that, but it really hit me then. And then we went into hospital uh, for her to give birth. Uh, and I was very lucky that one of my best friends at the time was the son of one of the uh, uh, top neurosurgeons at that hospital where she was giving birth. So so I gave him a call. I told him my concerns, the behavior change that I'd noticed. And he said, within three or four hours after she's given birth, we'll put her in the scan and we'll have a look what's going on. Um, so she gave birth to, to Vigo, our son. And, uh, from that day, our life changed pretty dramatically in many different ways. So we had a new baby Vigo and three hours later, I get a phone call saying there's tumor everywhere. It's been really aggressive. We need to get you into a room and talk to you about it. And this was interesting that at this stage, because she was so tired after giving birth and because of her mental state the kind of care and thought about the future the first time had disappeared and now it was when we were talking to the doctors it was much more this is this is a terminal diagnosis so you need to stop working you need to be the one that's looking after the baby um we're going to try everything we can for lena but um but the, the cancer spread it spread rapidly it's clearly going to be a glioblastoma uh, which is the most aggressive form and it's almost universally lethal and that was it so that was that was the birthday for for Vigo so uh, that was yeah a big slap uh, big change in our life yeah and then then Lena fought the battle for a bit over a, a year with with the support of you guys of course but it took about a bit over a year until till she passed away what what's that last year like with having a four-year-old and then a new baby and then all of this hap happening at the same time? So uh, the first few months were, I just remember <laughs> I had Vigo in this little uh, kind of rocking chair next to me sleeping. So obviously she couldn't breastfeed at the time because she was on quite strong drugs. Uh, so I was I was up all night feeding him and, uh, and she was at home. Uh, and for the first... I would say for the first two months, she was pretty much bedridden because she was recovering both from the pregnancy, but also, uh, you know, she was in a pretty bad way from a, a cancer and brain perspective. But um, her hormone levels obviously changed. I mean, we can't prove that it was due to the hormones, but but uh, she actually started getting a little bit better. After about two months, things changed. She was put on... Um, she was having radiation treatment at first, as I recall, and she was responding well to the radiation treatment. In fact, by the February of the 2009, 10, sorry, 2010, she had uh, almost no signs of the cancer. So, you know, I mean, th I think this is interesting what you start telling yourself in your own mind. You know, for her, it was never a terminal illness. She never believed it was a terminal illness. For me, you know, I was a mixture between hope, but also pragmatic around the likely outcome. Um, 
but this was a bit of a shock. We weren't expecting, you know, it looking this good after such a poor diagnosis in the June the previous year. So she had the radiation treatment. She was responding well. And then as the summer hits, June, July 2010, it switched again to being, um, she, it got bad and it got bad, very bad, very quickly. Um, what I mean by that is uh, she couldn't um, walk. She kept falling over. Uh, she was tired all the time. She would have to lie in bed. So that was so bad that we then had to have a pressurized bed brought into the house, uh, which would be pumped up with air. So you'd have this sound all night going, <laughs> which just drives you crazy. Um, so she'd have to lie lie on that bed for most of the time to stop bed sores. The, the hardest, hardest, hardest thing was uh, the tumor invaded the part of your brain that controls your um, balance. So not only was she falling over, but even worse than that, she felt like vomiting all the time. And there was almost nothing you could do about this. She used to have uh, the care visitors come twice, three times a day, and they'd give her these special injections. And she might get some relief for 45 minutes. But otherwise, she either was vomiting or felt she was going to vomit 24 hours a day. And it was just horrible to watch. Um, we did try, we obviously at this stage, I contacted uh, some of the best cancer treatment uh, places in the UK, uh, some in Germany. Um, what's interesting is you'll find that doctors typically are willing to give their, when you're in this situation, they're willing to give you time and expertise for nothing in return. I mean, it, I was touched by how, uh, how generous they were with their view on things. Um, but almost always it was like, you know, this is genuinely end stage. There's nothing, nothing really can be done. And if anything is done, it's likely to just cause more problems and more harm and more suffering. And in hindsight, that was completely correct. Because uh, we did push actually quite hard and she had some of the most expensive, newest treatments. She had, um, I can't even pronounce the name, but one drug that's, I think, you know, $100,000 per course. Uh, she also had this thing called dendritic cell vaccination, which is a, uh, a, a brand new treatment uh, none of them worked really and if anything it just took more time away so so yeah it was pretty grim she she'd never wanted to go to a hospice because of her experience with her father in a hospice but two weeks before she died she was like i just need to be in a hospice now <laughs> and she made the decision and we put her there and yeah it was it was a good place for her and by the end she was kind of i mean she was drugged up all the time she was high on morphine pretty much all the time by the end it's a pretty touching story and we actually also have will's daughter isabel with us today um she's now 14 years old and um if you've been listening into our previous conversations you may remember her from episodes three and four where from the first season where she helped us explain terms like health span epigenetics and circulating tumor dna in our uh, audio fact boxes but um, Izzy, you were five years old, I think, when Lena passed away. Uh, do you remember anything from what it was like when, when mummy was sick? I don't remember a lot. But I remember uh, going to the place where she died and being scared there um, and lying next to her in her bed that they had to take home. But that's all I remember, really, from when she was sick. And do you have any other memories, any maybe... Any favourite memories of, of mummy? Well, I remember her playing uh, with my Dora toys a lot um, when I was younger. And I do also remember 
when she was sick, she used to we used to lie in her bed and she used to show me pictures and we'd be lying there laughing at them. Yeah, because I guess she was quite tired a lot. So, but you could you could lie with her and you could look at those things. I know she did actually write a personal letter to both you and also one one to your brother. Um, and I think you read it or had it read to you when you were younger, but I know you also read it again um, fairly recently. Uh, what was that like to to read mommy's words? Um, it was a bit sad. Uh, it feels like I would have wanted to know her a bit more, to have a bit more memories with her because she, like from the letters, she sounded like a very nice and friendly person. Yeah, and um, now you're 14 years old and I know you're very occupied with being a teenager and everything that entails. But I was kind of wondering what what your relationship to this early part of your life is, so to say. Like, do you often think about it or how life could have been different? Is that anything that crosses your mind often? Or Well, you do think about it, but life still goes on. I have a good life now, so you think more that you wanted to know her a bit more and like spend a bit more time with her. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because... I know, Will, that despite Izzy being so young when, when she lost Lena, um, you often say that she has a lot of her mother in her and you can see almost from day to day that she's becoming more and more her mother. Yeah, so, I mean, there's always, you, you always look back with, you know, through t- rose-tinted glasses, but Lena was an extremely popular, friendly, loving, warm person. And I think, uh, luckily, Izzy's got that element from her. Um rather than my kind of impatience and uh, and problem in that way but no they 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 look similar they have uh, they have very similar personalities and they had a really strong bond uh, before she before she was really sick in 2009 even through 2007 when she was sick they spent a lot of time together yeah, and you say even some gestures and ways of of moving yeah so you definitely inherit like body movements the way you facial expressions you know when she does when isabel does comedy facial expressions they're the same as lena so you know she thinks she's original but but she's not <laughs> we've seen it before but it's nice isn't it so your your mommy still lives on through you yeah but i think you know i just wanted to jump on that i think one thing that's been interesting for, from our family perspective has been so Vigo never really knew Lena because she was he was one when she died. I I basically nursed him from uh, from 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 birth. Sounds really weird, <laughs> but um, uh, it was it was really evident that you know life life did go on. It was an extremely hard, sad time, uh, and they went through a lot, but. Uh, but they you know they kind of kids are extremely resilient i think i read somewhere that you know that the evidence was showing that we seem to do more harm to our children when we break up through divorce than we do when a when a parent dies maybe we can mess them all up more when we're alive than, than when we're dead but uh but i think you know that's what one message that i think is 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 clear to take away that there, there's a certain level of like life does go on and things will get better because there are extremely sad times both during but actually for for anyone who's who doesn't know and who has a friend or a, a or a family member who's going through this the time to help people is n- is not just when they're sick and then once they've died but three to six months after someone dies is the massively low period because when someone is about to die you have all the adrenaline and all the emotions of that 
and then you have all of the organization afterwards because you have to go through funerals and you know well everything that goes around that and then three to six months everyone else is moving on with their life and you're left with this like oh my god what happens next uh, and that's the time that you need you know your friends and your family to to start pulling you together so that's just a tip for anyone who who's going to uh, think about that and helping someone yeah so someone knowing someone maybe in that situation it's it's yes, good three to know to six months afterwards there's the danger period where where someone's probably at their lowest ebb while we're talking about tips my last question to both of you was actually going to be if there is anything else you'd like to add or say to other people that may be in the same situation um who perhaps recently lost a partner or a parent to cancer um if you have any any thoughts around that I mean, everyone's experience is going to be unique, so it's it's hard to kind of just give general advice. But so uh, this is going to be quite intimate as well. But a family member's relative recently committed suicide, and the only way I could think of of kind of dealing with that situation is to kind of um, for the for the period of death and afterwards for you know up to a year. And this is actually what one of the surgeons said to me you know, mourn hard, you know, get everything that you need to, to get out. And then over time, just, just try and think about the, like the, the reasons why you love someone and, 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 and the positive parts. It sounds like a bit cheesy, positive thinking, but I think, you know, you need to let someone have that hard period. It is going to be hard. There's no, gonna, no one's going to say anything to make it easier. You're just going to have to plod each day through for three, six months, a year, and then things are going to start to change. Life changes. And how about you, Issy? Maybe there are other children in your situation. I think you should think about the good memories instead of the bad ones. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. It's a strong thing of you to be very open about it, but I think uh, it's very interesting for a lot of people to hear it. Um, and, and I guess this is also part of the reason why you became so interested in, in health and all the things that you can do as an individual to improve your chances of staying healthy for as long as possible. Yeah, I can tell you that, you know, that, that's an interesting point. So Lena was a lawyer and I can tell you she didn't give a crap about law once she got diagnosed with this disease. Everything was about life and health. You know, she didn't think about it, talk about it. Priorities became crystal clear extremely quickly. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you, you don't think about health until you lose it and then you realize it's the most important thing. Um, and uh, and I think from our perspective, I, I hope that I know Kush, one of the doctors we're working with, moving medicine. There's a lot that can be done for people who have cancer to both improve their prognosis through lifestyle interventions, uh, but also to make the the whole treatment process much more manageable. So I so I hope there's going to be a greater a greater focus on this because I remember Lena stuck in a hospital, being given shit food friends would turn up giving her whole packets of sweets. You know, I'm pretty sure all of this stuff in the future will look back going, that is crazy. And that actually, I guess, leads us into more of the research side of things that we were also going to try and cover today. So at the beginning of this episode, we did also promise to cover some cancer research. And there is a lot of it. Uh, in fact, I actually did a search in PubMed, which is a search engine for life sciences and biomedical research publications. And there were almost 73,000 hits just during 2019 uh, with the word cancer in the title. 
And if you just look over the last 10 years, that's actually a more than 120% increase in the number of publications. And this is a much bigger increase than the increase in number of publications generally. So cancer is a very hot topic and there is a lot of research going on. So to manage expectations, we're not going to summarize tens of thousands of publications. But what we thought we'd focus on is to look at at some research on lifestyle interventions as adjuvant, which means add-on, to more conventional cancer treatments. I've seen that this is a big topic being discussed in online forums for cancer patients. And, um, well, I believe that this was also something that you and Lena were asking the doctors about when she got sick. Yes, yeah, so um, so you've got to remember this was 2007 to 2010. And at that time, she was very interested in, was there anything that she could do with her diet to uh, improve a possible outcome uh, for her brain cancer? And so she asked the doctors and um, they didn't really have any interest or any knowledge about it. They said there was nothing that they could think of that would have any impact. Uh, and I've got to say, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. In 2007 to 2010, I would have probably said the same thing. I thought it sounded like, you know, what's diet got to do with this? Uh, of course, since then, I've done a big 180 and I look back and I think about the, the crap that they were, that Lena was fed in the, in the hospital and the bags of sweets that friends brought that she piled down. And in hindsight, I think what we'll find going forward is that diet has or can have a very big impact on on uh, the likely end result. And yeah, I guess at first it does sound a bit fluffy to think about lifestyle intervention as a weapon against cancer, but there are actually good biological reasons as to why these approaches make some sense. Uh, but what, we, uh, what we're trying to dig a little bit into is how much of this is theoretical, versus how much is real hard clinical evidence. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that we're very interested in the research on biological aging and how to stay younger for longer. And cancer is one of those so-called age-related diseases, which means that as you get older, your cancer risk increases, and it actually increases exponentially. And cancer and aging do share some similar mechanisms, such as changes in cellular metabolism. So theoretically speaking, there is a good reason for why metabolic interventions used to promote longevity could also be effective against age-related disorders such as cancer. So yeah, so maybe that leads us into the first strategy we were going to talk about or the first lifestyle intervention, which is around diet. Uh, so diet in general and ketogenic diets, I would say, specifically. Um, there has been a lot of talk about ketogenic diets in cancer therapy during the recent years. And a ketogenic diet is, if you summarize it, high in fat and low in carbohydrates. Um, and that there are multiple ways of how you can create a ketogenic diet and are different protocols around it. But um, generally speaking, it's high in fat and low in carbohydrate. And it is believed that this balance in your nutrients, so to say, does create an unfavorable metabolic environment for cancer cells, which would then make them more sensitive to standard therapies such as chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Um, other benefits could also potentially include that it's usually quite well tolerated um, and it could potentially provide an increased uh, quality of life. Yeah, and I just want to jump on in there as well and say that uh... We have to say both in human and in animal studies, when it comes to the ketogenic diet, 
uh, there's a lot of back and forward uh, as to what actually is classified as the ketogenic diet. And it's not just simply uh, high fat, low carbohydrate. It seems to be that the type of fats that you use to form that high fat part probably matter a lot as well. So uh, so it's a rabbit hole that you uh, may end up going down once you start to look at this stuff. But overall, there are a number of publications on ketogenic diets uh, as a combination cancer treatment. Um, when I say combination, I mean in conjunction with uh, radiotherapy or chemotherapy or, or even uh, surgical operations. And if you're interested in reading more, we'll link to some of them in the episode notes. So glioblastoma, this is a, an, one of the most aggressive and deadly cancers. It's a brain cancer. It's actually the one that my wife, Lena, died of eventually. It's one of the cancer types that has the strongest level of ed- evidence that, uh, that a dietary intervention c- can have an impact. But that said, all the papers conclude that there is a lack of randomized controlled clinical trials and that most data is based on single case reports or small trials without standardized guidelines, which makes them difficult to compare. So to summarize, based on the evidence so far, we don't actually know how effective ketogenics are as a combination treatment. Yeah, and I guess that perhaps also links back to what you said, that there could be different ways of creating these ketogenic diets. There are different uh, fat combinations, etc. And because there isn't a standardized way of doing it, that makes it even more difficult to compare different trials. So this doesn't mean that a ketogenic diet um, or other types of dietary interventions are are not effective. Uh, what we're saying is there just doesn't seem to be enough evidence out there yet, at least, to definitively say if or in which circumstances they work. In medical research, the golden standard is a clinical trial, a randomized clinical trial, and there are not that many out of them out there. But on the flip side, Ketogenic diets seem to generally be well tolerated. If you or someone you know um, suffers from cancer and you're interested in trying this, you should, of course, always speak to your doctor before going down this route. And this is really important. Maybe we should, uh, at a later date, we might cover this topic with one of our doctors at Melio, who's a a medical doctor and is actually doing a PhD where he's looking at the metabolism of glioblastoma uh, and seeing, uh, seeing whether some dietary interventions may work. So it's an interesting, interesting subject for which we're we're at the front of. Speaking of guests, um, if you've been listening to our previous episodes, you may remember Dr. Jack Kreindler. Oh, Jack worked with Tessa Jow, Baroness Tessa Jow, who actually suffered from brain cancer before she died. Yes, that's correct. He did. Um, and he also was part of founding the uh, Centre for Health and Human Performance in London, where they work with top athletes as well as cancer patients. Mm. Um, And here is what he had to say about cancer and exercise. Looking after yourself and keeping yourself fit and healthy at least reduces your risk of certain forms of cancer and also it seems help you deal with the cancer if you do get it better. Um, Isn't that Absolutely. And funnily enough, we we kind of are beginning to understand why, too. So everyone just thought, oh, yeah, you know, like uh, if you've got more muscle and and so on, it means that you can have more chemotherapy. Well, I mean, that's 
partly true. It also helps you survive surgery if you need it and, and help you, you know, kind of get back on your feet um, if you're really debilitated from some of the treatments. But actually, we, we kind of understand a little bit now about what happens to cells when they become cancerous and how they use fuel in a really different way. Our cancer cells go to a very primitive form of metabolism. They burn energy in a way that most normal cells don't. Um, they ferment a little bit like yeast does or bacteria do. And that fermentation preserves an awful lot of um, the carbon um, uh, and the carbohydrates that are inside um, sugars, inside glucose, inside starches. And um, by preserving that carbohydrate in the form of pyruvate and lactate, and, you know, that becomes lactic acid, which is, a, which is another bad thing to have around too much of. But cancer cells love it because it becomes a, an extra fuel uh, for the cells when they come to divide and divide again and divide again. But our normal cells absolutely don't like that at all and by by keeping as fit as possible the hypothesis is that we keep more of ourselves from flipping into that ancient lactate type metabolism which is really interesting or even if we've got cancer the fitter we become perhaps there's an ability for us to switch off those mechanisms and you know there are actually some drugs like Berg Health in Boston has been working for years on a drug called BPM 31510, 31510, which actually is a drug that forces a cell back into its normal fit metabolic state. But anyway, yeah, there are cellular mechanisms now which we're beginning to understand about why it is that we can prevent cancer and live longer with cancer uh, just by being fit. So Jack actually covered our next topic, which is exercise. So we've talked a little bit about diet, particularly ketogenic diets, and I do know there are others, you know, there are fasting diets, and et cetera, et cetera. But here we're going to talk about exercise. And it seems that if the metabolism of cancer cells is a key target mechanism, then exercise could be another way to make life harder for cancer cells. Many of you already know that exercise has been shown to have a preventative effect on the risk of cancer. But what about cancer prognosis and therapy? Again, this is a field where we don't seem to have all the answers yet. Physical activity has been reported to be associated with a lower risk of recurrence in breast cancer and colorectal cancer, but more data are needed in other cancers. There's also a gap in knowledge as to the optimal timing and type of activity, and the exact mechanism by which exercise impacts cancer risk and prognosis is still largely unknown. So in one literature review, uh, which means that they've looked at multiple publications that have been done in a certain area. Um, and this review that was published in 2017 suggested that exercise is beneficial both before, during and also after cancer treatment. Um, and a general theme that they could see emerging across multiple publications was regarding the intensity of aerobic exercise, which was favoring moderate to vigorous exercise when you compare to controls who did not exercise at all or who exercised at a lower level of intensity. Another interesting fact that emerged, or a trend at least, that emerged from these publications in the, in the review was that uh, there seemed to be an overwhelming support that there is a significant benefit from exercise in terms of reducing cancer-related fatigue, which could also be a problem for, for many cancer patients. Yeah, especially after radiation or chemotherapy. I remember that uh, with Lena. Yeah. 
And uh, it also seemed that exercise positively impacted certain biomarkers, specifically immune and inflammatory markers, both during and after cancer treatment. But again, there was a variation between cancer types. And if you want to look into the details, check out the episode notes for a link to the article. And with that, we have reached the end of this episode. To summarise, there is a gap in our current knowledge of the efficacy of lifestyle-related interventions. There are certainly some promising results out there, but more research is desperately needed. And if you want to know what's best for you personally, you should always speak to your doctor. And as someone who has spent many years working in the field of clinical research, I can tell you that patient recruitment is a major reason for why clinical research trials get delayed, and this is particularly true for cancer trials. And if you're a cancer patient or know someone who is and would be interested in participating in a clinical trial, do speak to your doctor to find out if there are any trial opportunities in your area. This season, we'll release a new episode every two weeks. So if you haven't already done so, make sure that you subscribe to the What Does Good Look Like podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have any questions, comments or feedback on the topics we've discussed, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly via email, podcast at meliohealth.com or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using hashtag WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app or leave a rating or review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer.